0: You are listening to The Ivy Podcast. Learn from the thought leaders in areas of strategy, innovation, negotiation, and all things leadership. We interview the Ivy League, Fortune 100, and top startups. Now, here's your host, John Karsibaev. This
1: episode of The Ivy Podcast we we'll welcome the chair of the Harvard Business Executive Education General Management Program and William Barclay-Harding Professor of Business Administration, Stefan Tomke. We're actually here in Stefan's office on the beautiful HBS campus. Um, Stefan, fall weather here is very beautiful. What's your favorite season here on campus?
0: Yeah, I have two favorite seasons. You know, obviously the fall when you kind of see the leaf changing. You know, when they change to red and then fall. But what I really, really like is end of April you know when winter is over and everything is coming back it's basically about rebirth right it's uh you know and we're outside and we're just blown away by you know things changing leaves are sort of growing back things becoming green the sun is shining uh it's a fantastic time to be here
1: (laughs) that's awesome yeah i do recall that time when you know when i was finishing up the program here last may um so so for those who so are not familiar, uh, Stefan, he, your teaching style is very unique, very high energy, fast pace. Uh, if you haven't experienced a lecture by Stefan, you're definitely missing out. Uh, so just to give you an idea, Stefan probably averages, what, 10,000
0: steps per lecture? Could, could be, you know, could be. It's in, like the, the, it's in the miles range.
1: <laughs> it's in the miles range, exactly. <laughs> Stefan covers a lot of ground in uh, in each lecture hall, and it's... a uh, you keep that energy of the entire room, you know, throughout the entire lecture, which was yeah. very impressive. Um, have you always had this style of teaching or is that something that evolved over time?
0: It evolved over time. You know, I, you know, when I first arrived at Harvard Business School in 1995, uh, you know, one of the first things, of course, that I wanted to become is a, a good teacher because, you know, I heard a lot about all the great teaching around here. And so what I did is... Uh, I uh, decided to go and uh, sit in and listen to some of the greatest professors around here. We've been here forever. And uh, so I go to the first one uh, and uh, I take copies notes. I sit in the background and I'm writing, 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 and I'm observing every step. And I observed how he turned in the middle of the class, what he does on the board, how he calls people, body language. I took pages and pages of notes. And when I walked out, I thought, I have the secret. <laughs> <laughs> I have the secret of how to become a really good teacher. But just to be sure, let me go to the second one that I picked and listen in. So I sit again and I take the notes and I see everything. And I see some really strange things here because a lot of the things that I see that are very different than what I observed in the first one. And yet, it was another amazing class. So I'm getting a little confused. <laughs> So I said, just to be sure, let me go to a third one. So I go to a third one, observe again. And again, teacher does very different things. You know, the way calling, board techniques, and the, the body language. everything was kind of different. And again, I take lots of notes. And there were, of course, a few commonalities, but again, three great classes, they were all very unique. And I realized at that point is that it's all about authenticity. You know, yes, there are some techniques that you can learn, and you know, and Harvard Business School is really great about teaching new teachers as well. But uh, it's also about bringing your own self into the classroom, your own so So I worked on that really hard. So I want to have a unique style because that's what people remember, and uh, and it it does come natural to me. So. Yeah. It definitely works <laughs> and I'm having fun. Absolutely. I, w- I want to keep students engaged. I mean that's what it's all about. I think engagement is the most important thing when you teach because if you got someone in the classroom who's checking out you know who's maybe sitting in the back and checking you know phone or something like that, you lose them. You could be the you could have the most amazing material, Nobel Prize winning material but if they're not listening, if they're checking their phones or doing something else, you lost them. So my goal is into the classroom and, and not lose anybody. Everybody needs to be engaged. I think that's how you learn.
1: Great. Um, so a lot of your research and writings have focused primarily on process economics and the management of the business experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you draw that inspiration for these teaching principles? Is that from your professional background or is it yes. an interest of yours? You know, I
0: got I, I started to get interested in experimentation. Uh, When I was a graduate student at MIT, uh, where I studied electrical engineering and, uh, and I started to work on, you know, experimental methods and experimental design sort of methods on all sorts of things. And then, of course, later when I joined Harvard Business School, I noticed that people kind of talked in general about the importance of experimenting, but there was really no rigorous work sort of done, especially in the field of innovation, which is what I study. And so I ended up, you know, studying that and writing many articles on that, and, and like how to do it, how it changes the economics of innovating, how it changes the way you have to organize a company, and so forth. And I just looked at everything, and but I did focus primarily on R&D and uh, and uh, product development, sort of at the beginning, sort of taking more of an operations point of view, and that kind of broadened sort of over the years, and. So the twenty-five years or so that I've been here now, and so so that's how it all got started. I was always fascinated by this stuff, and I was actually doing it myself. So it's not just me studying it. You know, I was running experiments uh, in engineering labs. You know, in semiconductor labs, I was designing process control algorithms and sorts of things, and so so I was a practitioner of these kinds of things, but in a sort of fairly narrow context.
1: Mm-hmm. So you touched upon briefly about your past experience, your prior life to teaching. Yeah. As a, as a, is it mechanical engineer or what, what kind of engineer were you? Electrical. Electrical engineer. Yeah, yeah. By McKinsey. conviction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you were you were with McKinsey for some time, and yeah. then you transitioned into teaching um, here at Harvard. Can you talk a little bit more as far as how did that transition happen, and what was really the the drive behind going from that, you know, practitioner side to now, uh, you know, the teacher of those principles.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit kind of a strange faculty member here, because, <laughs> because uh, so, so I came out of uh, electrical engineering, and you know, how does an electrical engineer end up at a business school? and how can you actually apply the kinds of things that you do there in a business school setting and i must give harvard business school a lot of credit for that because at the time i think they were looking for people who are coming from different fields and i think they understood at the time that if you really want to understand product development which is sort of what i was focusing on product design product development i think it really helps to understand sort of how engineers think how engineers work and and so forth and so so my research and my experience in that field helped a lot now you mentioned I was also at McKinsey, which also was a great learning experience. And in fact, uh, how I ended up here is a long, long story. It goes way beyond your podcast, maybe another book. <laughs> but uh, uh, but it it's usually a combination of many things. It's a combination of luck, for sure. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of having great mentors. I had a I had an amazing mentor, you know, my my PhD advisor at MIT, who kind of. Put me in the right direction. You know, I was a young person back then <laughs> you know, I was in my late 20s when I decided to make that move and and Then uh, also a process of discovery. Uh, I think we have to kind of acknowledge that quite honestly Sometimes we don't know how things kind of work out and the way kind of to find yourself to find the things that really drive you to find Your passions is you have to be willing to discover things things have to re- reveal themselves to you and so that that was what about. So I, I I absolutely didn't want to become an academic at the time. And I had these vigorous debates with my advisor who told me I should at least try it. But I was willing kind of to go on this journey of discovery. And when I got a job offer here, I joined here and just wanted to see what it's like. And And I quickly realized that I love it. I mean, it uh, it was just an amazing time again. I'm do- it's my 25th year here now, Wow. and I, I, I love I love every day uh, of 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 you know the job I have. It's just a phenomenal job, and you know, I get to work on my problems. I get to study what I want to study. Uh, I I meet amazing people like you. You know, I get to teach them. I get to interact with them. I get to influence them. I can change the way they think, the feel, the way they act. Uh, tech for impact, and and I have no boss, which is also great. You, you can be that. <laughs> yeah, I know. Maybe for, for many of the listeners, that would be the main motivation. You know, to, to become a professor. Your uh,
1: application is going to increase for, for <laughs> professors. <laughs> exactly,
0: and it's just been a remarkable time, and uh, again, I haven't had a boring day here. So yeah, I can uh, relate, and
1: I can I can definitely tell by at least your teaching style that definitely resonates. You know with how much you enjoy that. Um, so just going back a little bit in terms of, um, as you focus on customer experience design, innovation strategy, and organizational change mm-hmm. in your teaching, um, are these principles serve as the underlying elements of your new book, The Experimentation Works. Could yes. you maybe tell us a little bit more about that and maybe an example or two from the actual uh, cases that are covered?
0: So, yeah. We live in an exciting time right now, I mean, really an amazing time, because when I studied, you know, when I started out in experimentation, you know, we didn't really know much about companies like Amazon, Google and all these companies that now, you know, are the biggest companies in the world, you know, by market cap. And... Uh, and I was really more interested in sort of the R&D side of it and how sort of new uh, technologies such as modeling and simulation are changing the way R&D is being done back then, and mm-hmm. which was I a mean, phenomenal impact, the way we design cars, airplanes, and so forth. But then the digital revolution came along, you know, these platforms, these digital platforms. And what they understood very early on is that experimentation or digital experimentation can be a competitive advantage. So they invested heavily on this. Uh, I, I invite anybody to go back and actually sort of uh, read Jeff Bezos' annual letters to the shareholders, you know, and he writes it himself every year. And he's been talking about experimentation almost from day one. He recognized this early on that this is really important. And so what's been happening now is that these, these companies, and there's about a dozen or so of them, uh, that these companies are running tens of thousands of live experiments on us. If you're using Google, Amazon, Netflix, Microsoft, I mean, I could go on Pinterest, I mean, go on and on and on, you are part of their experimentation ecosystem. If if you have 20 people in the room and they wanna book accommodations on either Booking or Expedia, and they open up the landing pages, they will end up on different landing pages. There is, in fact, no one landing page because they're running all these experiments. Uh, Booking alone, which is, you know, the the leading uh, accommodations platform in the world, you know, they've got about 1.5 million nights, room nights are booked on their platform every single day. Uh, there, There are quadrillions of variations, of permutations, Around, because of all the experiments they run, just to remind yourself, a quadrillion is at a million billion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so what's been happening is we're basically in the middle of an experimentation revolution here, and which is really nice, really a really great time. And you know, if I may kind of diverge a little bit, you know, there's we're also getting into a very auspicious year, 2020, because the in 1620. A guy named Francis Bacon, a very famous philosopher, wrote a book on a new method for science, today known as the scientific method. And that new method of science, which he sort of, he basically set the foundation, which was later changed, changed the world. It changed, you know, medicine. It changed everything. So finally, took about 400 years. for this new method the scientific method actually finally gets sort of to to the way you know managers are making decisions and so forth so it's a it's a revolution i think that's happening right now and that's what the book is about the book is but is not just about drawing attention to this sort of thing the way booking and other companies and microsoft sort of does this but it's also a how to book that is you know assuming that you really want to do this yourself either in a In an online environment but even in a a brick and mortar environment is how do you actually get started like what do you pay attention to what is a good experiment how does it help you to make better decisions and so it's also a how-to book uh, and it gives you a lot of sort of advice chapter by chapter on how to do this whether you're just at the beginning of this journey or whether you're in the middle of the journey or even if you're kind of at the top of the mountain you know where you're actually doing a lot of this and, uh, and you can get some really great advice. You know, I have uh, uh, Mark Ockerström, who is the CEO of Expedia, right? Sort of, uh, he read the book and uh, he, he, I think he wrote me this great endorsement and he said, listen, you know, for, for most companies, I said, he's, he basically said, you know, in the long run or over many companies in the short run, I said, if you don't do this, you will die. Right. And uh, so that's what the book is all about. Mm-hmm. It's make sure that you don't die, you know, as a company. <laughs> and yeah. you better learn how to do this uh, because it is changing everything. Yeah.
1: yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, remember some of the, the lessons that, that you covered in your previous book, uh, Experimentation Matters, yes. a lot of good examples on some of the companies that you mentioned in terms of that continuous and never-ending experimentation. Absolutely.
0: The iterative model, I mean, I was one of the first people who wrote about iterative models. Mm-hmm. You know, that's before all the agile stuff began. Right. And it was all in there as well, iterative product development. We saw that in software later on and so forth. And uh, I thought, you know, when I wrote the last book is that I was done. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of nailed it. And of course, the play with words was intentional experimentation matters, right? right. It's the matters of experimentation. And I thought I'll move on to something else. And then all the digital stuff happened and I said, I can't let this go because I gotta go back to it. Right. And so I went back to it and and, and so it so again the play with a title is intentional, by the way. Yes, experimentation works, but to make it work, you also need a works, a factory, mm-hmm. you know, an an operational setup that allows you to do that. And and so I think about the two books a little bit, and I don't know, maybe you're too young for that, for the Beatles, but <laughs> you know, Beatles had these <laughs> two famous albums. I don't remember the red album and the blue album. You know, the red albums were like the classics uh-huh. and the blue album were like all the new stuff that the Beatles were doing and they almost came out at the same time. And if you were a huge Beatles fan, you had to have the red and the blue album. It was not like one or the other. So I think about it. I'm not saying that I sing like the Beatles or anything like this, Uh but I think about the two books a little bit like the Red Album and the Blue Album. The Red Album is kind of more the classical stuff in the engineering field, and the Blue Album is a little bit back up all the digital stuff that's happening right now.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, that's (laughs) an interesting uh, contrast right there. And, you know, I can relate to a lot of these um, lessons that you cover, in the, at least in the experimentation matter, because yeah. being in information technology myself, software yeah, yeah. development, that's, as you know, that agile iterations and a lot of the, you know, yeah. the Kaizen methodologies, it's all about iter- iterating, it's all about exper- experimentation, mm-hmm. it's all about prototyping. Mm-hmm. Um and I know both you and I share the common uh, passion for watches as well oh yes and for sure <laughs> I do that as a hobby but it's um as far as in uh, watchmaking you know that's I yeah, think yeah. that's what it's all about all about yeah. prototyping all about experimentation
0: it's experiments experiments are, are hugely important and I I'm always surprised quite honestly I mean I go to a lot of company meetings and I sit through a lot of presentations and and I, I'm often surprised they that some companies just don't do this more, more of it, or that they make decisions, you know, uh, by by intuition, by you know hierarchy, and all these kinds of things, you know. But uh, why don't they just run the bloody experiment? Right. And why don't they just test it? Because the test would have revealed, you know, some of the problems that you're having. It could have revealed some better alternatives and all that. And uh, and imagine now if you could do this at scale. And I'm not talking about five of these things or 10 of those things, you know, I imagine. So one of the things which uh, which is also really interesting is when I, you know, when I studied this, especially sort of in the digital domain, you know, what we found is that there's a kind of a constant that runs throughout a lot of these companies. And they all tell me that, you know, when they're running a lot of experiments, their batting average tends to be something like 10, 15%. That means, you know. 10 to 15 percent of the things that they run, maybe sometimes it's slightly higher, but that's around sort of the ballpark of the things that they test, the ideas, hypotheses that they test, actually work. Uh, that means you know they give you some lift, uh, you know, or some change in a KPI that you care about, and the rest either has no impact or has impact in the opposite direction of what you sort of expect. Mm-hmm. So the yield is actually pretty low. If you're only running 10 of these things a year and you've got a yield of maybe 10%, you may get one. And if you're unlucky, you get nothing out of sort of the whole experimentation room. So what ends up happening is people in these kinds of setups are kind of afraid to fail so they don't take risks because, you know, at the end of the day, someone is going to ask them, so you're doing all these experiments. So what do you you have to show for? And so they're going to play it safe. They're not going to run very risky things and all that. But imagine now that you're running... 10,000 of these things and your batting average is, say, 10, 15%, you still have a 1,000 to 1,500 experiments that work. And uh, that can have a huge impact on your business. And you're not really worried about taking too much risk or failing and all this. That all goes away when you're starting to scale. And what's also interesting is when you think about innovation, we always think about innovation uh, as breakthroughs you know disruptions and all these kinds of things but the reality is innovation is that most of innovations are incremental and what has changed here in this sort of center that we have here is uh, our thinking about innovation because in the past we thought you know incremental innovations are associated with incremental performance changes but in this world that's not not true either turns out that some tiny changes you know, even a one percent or two percent improvement can have a massive impact on revenue. Because if you take that one or two percent, and let's say you 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 multiplied, you know, Booking gets close to five hundred million people visitors per month traffic. So if you multiply that by a few hundred million, scale it instantly, you got a massive impact on revenue. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so this this is the way to go. Uh, there's a yeah go ahead
1: oh, absolutely no i was just going to add something to that that you know a lot of that has to do with the company culture itself oh and yes you need to yeah. promote that there are some companies that um you know the local to my market in south florida like ultimate software chenmed uh, broward health Insurance, yeah, yeah. they actually promote that type of innovation within where they even allow they go as far as allowing their employees to mm-hmm. work a certain amount of hours or percentage of their time on the projects that they are very passionate about. And I think that's really cool to allow, not only work on your core product that you, you know, your main responsibility, mm-hmm. but also make that investment to allow you people to work on something that they really passionate about. So, I think that can translate to a lot of...
0: Absolutely. You know, so I'm going to let you in on a little secret here. If you look at a company, like we talked about Booking, for example, and I'm sure many of the listeners have used Booking. Uh, what is amazing at Booking is that Anybody at Booking can launch a life life experiment on millions of visitors without management permission. They can just launch it, and that's pretty radical. (laughs) Because if you could, if you think about it, you know Booking makes on average—I mean their 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 uh, their gross profit per transaction is 15 percent. So out of every booking that you make, you know, they get to keep 15%. You can imagine that if someone launches something pretty crazy or that kind of law, you know, results in traffic to go down or in customers being discouraged and all this, I mean, you could have a massive impact on profits very quickly. But for them, it's the only way to get to the scale. Because if you think about it, I mean, think about the numbers, you know, if, if you, know, if, if you, if you want to run that many, if you want to launch 100 new experiments per day, you can't have someone sitting there and says this goes, this doesn't go, this goes. You can't have a committee sitting there and trying to figure out sort of what goes and what doesn't go because you you, you know if you do that, you things will kind of the scale will quickly go down. So you have to. So what we found or what and what the book is in, in part also about is is trying to create a culture for experimentation. It's uh. And uh, what I found when I looked at it, yes, the tools are great, and, you know, tools can do sort of amazing things and so forth, but you know, nowadays, anybody can get the tools. Uh, just have to buy them, pay for them and, you know, learn some basics and so forth, but creating a culture that allows you to do this at scale, that is actually the big challenge. So it that means, you know... Uh, it means a number of things. First of all, it means democratizing experimentation, basically allowing people to, uh, to launch their own experiments live on, on on customers and users. It requires total transparency, so not, you cannot allow them to hide things, so they have to also show what they're doing to everybody. It requires creating a community that gives feedback. Booking also has another rule that anybody at Booking can stop any experiment that somebody else launched, Uh, even though they rarely do, they call it the nuclear option. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it also requires uh, that uh, you you have to follow the data, you know, you have to, the the data basically has to trump uh, opinions. Uh, It requires uh, hiring curious people, people who are willing to challenge, willing to question Rather than kind of just hiring people who fall in line, so there's a, there, there are a lot of elements that you have to pay attention to. It also requires a very different leadership style. Kind of what do we expect leaders to do? And you know we and and maybe it's in part also our fault here. You know we we're, we're, we're training basically our MBAs and our executives to be very you know decisive decision makers. You know going up to the top. The reality is. In the digital world, there are so many decisions to be made, and we don't know what works and doesn't work. And so it also requires for a leader to kind of go into a meeting and and start the meeting by saying, guys, I don't know. (laughs) Willing to admit that I just don't know what the right decision is. I just don't know what's going to happen. So... So the question is, how do we generate the right data? You know, actually sort of to tell us that it requires leaders to go into the room and also uh, ask for the experiments. You know, let's not make a decision unless we have an experiment. It requires uh, leaders to, 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 to give people a vision, a grand challenge of what they're optimizing so they know what they're after. And finally, it also requires leaders to live by the same rules. You can't ask someone in your organization to do something that you're not willing to follow. So that means, you know, sometimes when the data says you're wrong, you have to admit that you're wrong. And that's hard (laughs) for someone, you know, who's, uh, who's the boss, (laughs) as far as the boss, as, uh, you know, Richard Feynman, right? Mm late physicist, no Nobel Prizing physicist, was at Caldeck, one of the smartest person of the 20th century. And uh, he had this great line sort of uh, when he talked, he, actually he talked about the scientific method, the experimental method actually in science, but I think it equally applies to management. And uh, and he said it, it it doesn't matter how beautiful your theory is, it doesn't matter how smart you are, and I'll add my own stuff now, it doesn't matter where you're on the hierarchy it doesn't matter how beautiful your powerpoints are it doesn't matter how persuasive you are Uh, if the experiments if the experiment doesn't work with the experiments which you're wrong (laughs) you know so that's the that's the hallmark of the scientific method it's the humble experiment yeah
1: absolutely. And if you
0: can't replicate it if you're a scientist and you're running something you can make the claims if somebody else cannot replicate the experiment you're wrong right and that's the ultimate test and the question is do you want to have that test before you launch the product before you go out and make a big decision because at the end of the day at some point the market is going to tell you right what the right answer is whether you want it or not absolutely and you want to get that answer before you've sunk a few hundred million dollars into it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, th- there you go there's some free advice and, uh, <laughs>
1: for all of you listeners out there and hopefully everyone's taking notes <laughs> um so stefan in some of the closing remarks you uh, you you're an author of books you you've you have a lot of publications a lot of articles you, you read a lot um, what are some of the books that you always recommend to others and why Except so, for yours, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes, get my book. <laughs>
0: but uh, uh, I think there is, I, I want to single out, I mean, of course, there are many books come out, but I think uh, I want to single out one book, uh, which I thought was very intriguing. And it's a book that you actually probably want to read multiple times. It's Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow from Daniel Kahneman. It's, uh, it's an amazing book. Because he talks about sort of how people think, how people make decisions. You know, it's a lot of psychology. You know, there's a field called behavioral economics and so forth. And it's a, it, it's an amazing book. I mean, Daniel Kahneman got a Nobel Prize for his work, of course. But But what he did is he, you know, so he's got a lot of evidence, too. So this is not someone, there's a lot of books nowadays where people kind of just write about their opinions, what they think seems to be true. No, it's like what he writes about is all evidence-based. And he spent his whole life basically sort of studying sort of uh, the way people make decisions and the psychology that's kind of behind it. And it is a profound book. And, and it's written for, for not just an academic reader, it's written for someone who's actually trying to do this. We had, I had an experience, I was working with, um, with a semiconductor company, And we had sort of the equivalent of a book club. So we would actually recommend a book uh, every, you know, three to six months. And all the executives have to read it. And then we would get together and we discuss the ideas on the book and how the ideas can be applied to what they do how, and to everything, to marketing, R&D, you know, executives, how they make decisions and all that sort of thing. When we picked that book, what we did is what we found is we went through a chapter by chapter. Every chapter sort of itself was worth gold <laughs> mm-hmm. and it had profound sort of insights that affected I think everything that the company did so this was actually the only book I think that we took and and ran through like the whole year and people kind of read it and went back to it over and over again and uh, so it's not a book that you're going to read on a flight from from Boston to New York City uh, you know it's uh, but and you can do it just chapter by chapter And lay it down and think about it and and then you probably wanna reread it at some point as well. But that's a book that it's I have I have on both bookshelves here in my office, in my home office. (laughs) And I go I go back to it frequently. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a
1: really good recommendation. I I Uh, read it. I read it once and you know, I, I thought I'm gonna finish that relatively quick, skipping some stuff, no, but then no. you're absolutely right as far as having yeah, yeah. you know to go back and yeah, revisit yeah. a lot of the yeah, readings, because yeah. when I went through it, I'm like, wow, there's yeah, a yeah. lot
0: of... Thinking so, fast and slow, yeah, 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 and sort of thinking about, so you also learn a lot about yourself right. uh, and how, how, how your own mind works, and, and maybe it helps you actually to understand why you're making some of the decisions yourself as yeah, well. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Uh, and we'll make the, the link to the book available on uh, the episode notes. Stefan, thank you so much. I know you're very busy, man. No, you, you, it's been a now, pleasure. <laughs> you're now running the whole program here um, at Harvard, and uh, you're busy with with, uh, no. with your new book and all of that. So thank you so no, much. For no, no. Well, thank you, really thank you for
0: it. thank you for sort of the 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 conversation uh, again tell everybody get the book yes it's uh it's an amazing you know if you haven't thought about what to put under the christmas tree you know birthdays you know i'm sure the family the kids everybody would appreciate it (laughs) absolutely
1: and i can and i can relate you know especially having read your first book is definitely very engaging so i definitely look forward to that yeah, we'll make it uh, the link to that book. On, it's on Amazon, right? Right now. Yeah, so. it's
0: already on Amazon. Yeah. Uh, I'll it's put it out there with the sales already. Yeah.
1: yeah. Awesome! Great, Stefan. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.